Coming up on today's show. Vinyl never went away. You know, so there's absolutely a resurgence because now you see it at Target and you see it at Barnes and Noble and it's it's back, you know, in, in front of the, the average consumer. But the record stores, there've always been used record stores and they've always been full of people. Welcome to another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment, featuring interviews with guests who are having success in entertainment, primarily music. I am Bruce Wozniak, talking to guests who are singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, and more from the worldwide music community. Be sure you are on the list for the weekly e-newsletter. Yes, I am aware that a lot of people are trying to get you on their mailing list. That's because those folks want to bombard you to the point where you're ultimately going to hit the unsubscribe button. I'm happy to report that I only send out once a week. That's it, on Wednesday, when a new episode of this show comes out. So make sure you're signed up to receive that, for free, of course, to your inbox. If you're not already getting it, go to my podcast website, nhte.net, and pop your email address into the sign-up box. I do publish exclusives in there from time to time, so don't miss out. There was one as recently as last Wednesday. I love hearing from listeners of this show. You can write to podcast at nhte.net, or instead of email, you are welcome to DM me through the at Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Sacramento, California, my guest is a guitar player, one half of the duo act, the Cracker Brothers, and the CEO of Outer Marker Records. He is also head of marketing, artist relations, and sales for DW Fern slash Hazel Rig Industries, and in the past was director of marketing for TIAC America, which includes Tascam. You've been hearing an instrumental version of the police song King of Pain, as performed by the Hazel Rig Brothers, who are on Outer Marker Records. Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Eric Larson. Hey Bruce, it's great to speak with you again. How are you? Wonderful, wonderful. It's great to finally have you on. This has been long overdue, for sure. Absolutely. Now, way back on episode 156 of this show, back in January 2017, I interviewed the Hazel Rig Brothers. Audience, I would love it if you've been with me that long and heard that conversation. But Eric, for the benefit of those who don't know them, since a song of theirs was just playing during the intro, share with the audience who the Hazel Rig Brothers are and about this album that they've done, as well as the mix done on this album. Sure. So Hazel Rig Brothers is a jazz trio founded by brothers George and Joff Hazel Rig, along with John O'Reilly Jr. on drums and percussion. And they do a variety of things, but what you just heard was one of the tracks on their new album, which is an all-instrumental jazz version of the Police's Synchronicity album in full running order all the way through. So they've kind of reimagined and reinterpreted those original songs as a jazz instrumental piece. And what these guys had done is they make sure everything is recorded live. So what you just heard were no overdubs, no punches, no fixes. That is a live recording of the trio. And it was recorded with two stereo mics through high-end tube recording gear that they also build as part of DW Fern and Hazel Rig Industries. So it's a complete farm-to-table approach. Now, I don't know if I was aware that they had recorded it the way that you described with no overdubs. And so was it just one straight take? Is that what you're saying? 
They will occasionally play multiple takes and then take different portions from them. If they find out that, you know, maybe the outro chorus of this one take was a little bit better, they'll do it. But they don't go back to add percussion. They don't add piano riffs. It's a complete live performance. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a refreshing approach in this day and age of auto-tune. And how many plugins do I have that I could use on every song? Exactly. And there's plenty of room for that in the world. We're just looking to do something a little bit different. Well, congratulations on the launch earlier this year of Outer Marker Records. Tell us about the record label, why it was launched, and what makes it different from other record labels and audience. The segue here is that the Hazelrig Brothers, as I mentioned in the intro, are on Outer Marker Records. Sure. I mean, this is there's a long story about the gear that we build in the different companies, and we'll probably get to that. But um, Hazelrig Brothers, quite simply, had recorded this album and were shopping it around to other labels. And people at that point were not tripping over themselves to find an instrumental album by a jazz trio. You know, it doesn't really line up with a TikTok generation. So as we were looking at this, we realized that we're making records that we like with artists that we like, recording music that we like at the quality level that we like. And we thought, well, why not just start our own label? So it's as boutique as it possibly gets. And we're working specifically to provide content for the audiophile community. Now, eventually, we're going to be talking about how the music is available and so on. But Outer Marker Records, I'm going to say plans to. Maybe you're going to update me and say we're already doing it. But vinyl is also going to be part of the Outer Marker Records operation, yes? Absolutely. And we're trying to make sure that we're supporting whichever formats make sense for us and for the listeners. So right now, we do all our work direct to DSD, which is an extraordinarily high-resolution digital format. And we do make our records available through our partners at Native DSD as high-resolution DSD and WAV files. And we're working, of course, with the team right now to make sure that we're going to be able to put things out on audiophile quality vinyl. And we did a lot of work with the folks at Sweetwater Studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we've now released the Atmos mix, the spatial audio mix of Synchronicity. So we want to make sure that we're providing this album at the absolute highest quality in whatever format people really want to enjoy on their great systems. The spatial audio mix, the Atmos, is that... I'm trying to remember back in the day, I know there was such a thing as, you know, you could get different versions. I don't remember if it was audio or video. I just having kind of a, a brain fog right now. But is it, no, if you're getting the Hazel Riggs Synchronicity album, you are getting that version? Or is it, if you want the Atmos version, that's an alternative? It's actually the, the same version. I mean, obviously, it's it's a mix that was produced for Atmos and for Spatial Audio. But if you go to Apple Music and you're listening through AirPods or their headphones, or if you've got a receiver set up that can support Atmos, Apple Music will give you the Atmos mix that's going to give you the full spatial immersive experience. If you are only listening through standard headphones, Apple Music will get you the stereo mix. So it's going to scale to whatever your listening situation is. Okay, and I was going to ask you that because I was in New York City a couple weeks ago and there happened to be, and it really was a fluke, the timing was such that there was a podcaster meetup and somebody came up and spoke about Dolby Atmos, and they said, oh, by the way, we have $150,000 Mercedes parked outside. You can come and sit in there, and we will give you a demonstration. So I went and sat in there and listened, and I thought to myself, well, let's take this all the way down to, as you just said, the person who doesn't have $150,000 Mercedes and doesn't have capabilities to listen to something that's been done in Dolby Atmos, and they're just listening through their darn phone to their music. 
So you're saying that it will still translate. It's not going to be the same experience, but there's going to be a version for the phone. It's not exactly the same experience, but it is part of the same experience. And I think that's what's so fascinating to me about Atmos in particular, as opposed to maybe the older 5.1 formats and multi-channel mixes, is it is scalable. So when you're mixing towards Atmos, you're mixing to the algorithm, and on playback, your system knows how many speakers you have. Wow. So if we're in Sweetwater Studios, where they've got the 13 speakers around the room and the ceiling and the walls and the subs, it says, okay, great, I know how many speakers you have, and it spits it out so that it's optimized for that room. Mm. If I'm sitting here with my Apple AirPods, it says, oh, you've got the AirPods, and it, sa- it sends me the mix that's going to be decoded by this system. The beauty is with the head tracking on, if I'm sitting still and I turn my head as I'm listening to Synchronicity by Hazel Reed Brothers, I actually can focus on different instruments around me. I can turn my head to the right and hear the drums. I can turn my head to the left and hear the piano. Mm. So I am in the middle of this spherical experience. Amazing. Amazing. So I want you to repeat it. I was going to ask you where are albums from Outer Marker Records available. So even though you said it, I want you to say it again. But also... Where are they not available that the audience might be used to seeking out music on? You know, right now, what we're looking to do is, obviously, you can go to OuterMarkerRecords.com, and we can get you you access to our music on CD, or we can point you to our partner's native DSD, or Apple Music, and eventually vinyl. But we're also trying to make sure that we're protecting our artists, and we're providing an experience that is elevated sonically and really financially. So, for example, we have no interest in working with Spotify. Um, they've had some interesting news come out lately where unless you get X number of streams, you don't get paid at all. So you no longer even make your thousandth of a penny for the stream. It's simply a situation where you're throwing them the music, they're getting the listeners, they're getting all the benefits, and the artists get nothing. So we thought, well, there's no reason to get nothing. You know, at least when we're working with the folks at Apple Music, our customers and our listeners get a better experience because of the work that Apple's done and the commitment they've made to spatial audio. They are actively working to provide a better listening experience for their users, and we want to make sure that we're aligning ourselves with companies like that. Okay, let's workshop this a little bit because I'm thinking of the consumer who says, well, I'm an Android person. I'm not an Apple user, so I count on Spotify. I can't go to Apple Music. I'm also thinking of the devil's advocate who maybe is an indie artist that says, well, I'd still rather be in a position on Spotify to eventually get X number of streams so that I am eligible to start earning. So let's workshop through that. Sure. So obviously there are solutions for some Android users with Apple Music. So there are ways to do it. And of course, if you're listening through Apple Music on your smart TV and you happen to have an Atmos capable receiver and the home stereo system that supports it, you can experience it that way. And for the indie artists that are deciding to use Spotify for exposure in order to get people to their shows or to buy merch or to become excited, absolutely. If it makes sense for them for what they're doing, there's absolutely no reason that they should not. For the work that we're doing, with the artists that we're working with at the quality level that we're hoping to maintain for our listeners, we've chosen to simply not to. Now, something that you've chosen to do, and I read this in an interview, so I don't think I'm giving away any industry secrets here because this is an article that I read on the internet. And of course, if it's on the internet, then it must be true. Of course, <laughs> absolutely, right? I read that Outer Marker Records is doing 
the question was about what percentage, because of course artists all want deals with record labels, and the first thing one they want to know is what percentage am I going to get? And Outer Marker Records fifty fifty with the artist, yes. Absolutely. From the proceeds that Outer Marker gets in from the sales, and it depends on the channel, you know, obviously we have a cut that we have with the folks at Native DSD, and we have our costs through CDs and through vinyl, but our profits, we split 50-50 with the artist. It makes the math easy, and everybody has some stake in the game. For This is unique. Usually I feel like Be conscious, Bruce, of the fact that you have 162 other countries besides the United States that have listened to now hear this entertainment. This time I'm going to say for the people in America who aren't familiar, you keep mentioning Native DSD and you talked about them before, but I just want you to re-explain who they are, what that is, in case people think this is a little over my head. I'll just go to the Arthur Marker Records website and purchase the music through there, which I'm sure you're happy with, but I know you're also eager to be a good partner with Native DSD. Yes, and what we do is if you come to our site, if you'd like to purchase a CD from us for one of the albums, we absolutely can sell you that, but we have links directly to Native DSD. So Native DSD is a website run by our partners. They happen to be in Europe, and what they do is they offer a wonderful catalog of high-resolution downloads of music at audiophile quality. So it's really high bitrate DSD. It's really high-resolution WAV files as downloads. And they want to make sure that people are getting the absolute highest quality they can possibly get. So let's go back to the fact that you said that Outer Marker Records is, in fact, working with Apple Music. So between Apple Music and Sweetwater Studios, it sounds like And what you just described with Native DSD, of course, that you're being very strategic in the partners that you're choosing and working with and you're having conversations. And it's not just a case of an artist uploading their own music and saying, hopefully it's going to end up anywhere and everywhere. Exactly. And I mean, obviously they can do that. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, Cracker Brothers earlier. Uh, At this moment, Cracker Brothers is not on our label. So that's what we're doing because we simply want to be able to share our music with our friends and we're not looking to sell it at the moment. But what we're looking to do is we're trying to make sure that through Outer Marker, we are providing a superlative product and we want to make sure that it's available through partners that treat their customers with the respect that they deserve and are delivering the product at the highest level of quality. Well, one thing, and audience, get your popcorn. This is going to be a really cool story that Eric's going to tell. One thing that you're doing that I think is really unique, and, and this is a teaching moment here in terms of kind of music history. Eric, talk about the history of record labels, meaning how the Outer Marker Records business model is actually what used to be done in the 50s and 60s versus what it turned into, say, in the 70s, 80s, etc. You and I talked about this the other day, and you mentioned earlier in this interview, we'll talk about that later because you were talking about the gear that the Hazel Rigs do. So just walk us through that whole history and, like I said, the similarity to 2023 and Outer Marker Records looking like the record labels used to back in the 50s and 60s. Sure. I'm, obviously, I'm, I'm not an expert in that field, and I'm not quite old enough to remember that exactly. <laughs> but when I met... George Hazelrig, Joff Hazelrig, and Doug Fern, I was doing the marketing for Tascam where we were selling high-end digital recorders. They happened to use our high-end digital recorders to make the records they were making. I then found out that they also have been hand-building microphone preamps, equalizers, and compressors for recording studios for some years. Doug Fern started a company called D.W. Fern back in 1993 because he could not buy a preamp for his studio that sounded good enough to him. Mm. So he designed his first preamp, loaned it to a buddy of his, 
never got it back and found out <laughs> apparently he's now in the gear building business. <laughs> George and Joff Hazelrig eventually started working with Doug and they decided to license some of his circuits to build kind of a Swiss army knife product that contained a mic preamp circuit designed by D.W. Fern and part of an EQ circuit designed by D.W. Fern and a DI circuit designed by D.W. Fern and put it all in, a, all, all in one box that they launched under their company, Hazelrig Industries. Those two companies have now effectively merged where Hazelrig Industries, George and Joff Hazelrig, along with Matthew Glosson, a shop apprentice, are hand-building all of that gear piece by piece in a small workshop. So it's all handcrafted recording gear. And that's very similar to what used to happen way back when. If you were in 1955, you were not going to be firing up your computer to record your rockabilly band in the living room. You had to go downtown to the recording studio, the recording studio was not able to go to Sweetwater or Guitar Center and buy all the recording gear. There was no industry around it. So a lot of a lot of times what's happening is the recording companies and the recording studios were built by the recording companies and they were populated by gear that someone in their company built <laughs> because it was a completely insular industry. So for example, I mean, we've all seen these stories the Beatles went to EMI Studios in London, which is now Abbey Road, and they recorded on tape decks that were modified by EMI engineers, and they were recording through preamps that were built and or modified by EMI mm. engineers, and those records were mixed by EMI engineers, and they were mastered by EMI engineers, and they wow. came out on EMI records. <laughs> so, you know, you fast forward now all these years, and we have studios in Doug Fern's home or George and Joff's home. It's populated with gear that they designed and built by hand, and they set the mics and they set the dials. In the case of Hazel Rig Brothers, they arrange and play the music, then they do the mix, and we put it out on a record label that we're running. So it's that farm-to-table approach that used to be commonplace and is now a little bit unusual, but we like the control it gives us. It, we like the amount of control over the quality and we like to do it. So it just it's it's fun and we think we come out with a great product. One of the differences is they are not a commercial studio. So I like that history lesson about back in the day if you wanted to do it. Not only did you not have a computer, but you, the gear just wasn't accessible to musicians to be able to do out of their house and I think that's a difference is that the Hazel Rigs are not running a commercial studio where people can go to but I still like that analogy. You keep saying farm to table. I feel like it's kind of hybrid because they have recreated what you just described from the 50s and 60s, and yet they're still technically, quote-unquote, home recording. That's the best part of it. Absolutely. And not even technically. I mean, quite literally. It is, you know, this is Joff's basement. Now, obviously, it's not a basement, you know, with the heater and full of, you know, old boxes. <laughs> they've pretty much, you know, they've decked this room out. It's a great sounding room now. It's very small, but they're able to put the piano right next to the stand-up bass, right next to the drum set. And with two stereo microphones, they can go in, basically hit record on their system and begin working on their albums. Well, I'm saying technically because I'm thinking of the person who says, yeah, I have my own home studio, and all it is is he or she is sitting at their desk, and they have a laptop, and you know maybe they have some kind of audio interface, and it's not really what the Hazel Rigs have. But again, the Hazel Rigs are not running a commercial studio. I do want to, in the second half of this show, talk about what some of those options are that the indie artist who wants to try to record from home can be made aware of through the work that you do 
with Hazel Riggs and D.W. Fern. But first, while we're still talking about Arter Marker Records, tell us about the artists on the label so far. We've been talking about the Hazel Riggs, but, you know, is there anyone else maybe in the pipeline that you can reveal? And by the way, what could catch your eye as to an artist you might consider bringing on? Yeah, I can speak um, for hours and hours and hours about this. <laughs> so right now, we have three albums currently available on Outer Marker Records. Uh, the first one, of course, is Synchronicity, as we spoke about. The second one is an album called Murmurations, which is about 26 classical solo piano pieces, mostly minimalist in the, uh, the category of these. And these are performed by Marcia Hadjimarcos, who's living over in France right now. She is a phenomenal classical keyboardist. She plays piano and a lot of other historical instruments, and she has done just a fantastic job of creating this solo piano piece that was recorded on George Hazelrig's 1887 Steinway Grand Piano. Whoa. So it is a beautiful piece, and it is eminently listenable. I mean, it is, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating record, and it definitely is both entertaining and enlightening. And this is her that you're hearing playing while Eric is talking. Folks, I wanted to make sure that we gave you a chance to hear the music that she has done. And what a cool story. I did not know that. So she came to America and recorded that. Is that how that was done? Yes, so that's that's George's piano. And they had known her for years and had been doing some things, and she was going to be coming over to do some work. So they said, well, tell you what, why don't you just have a couple extra days where we are? And she simply sat down. As I mentioned, they always have the mic ready to get set up. It's running through some DW Fern preamps. And she sat down and played, did a few takes mm. of each piece, and they said, that's the one, moved on to the next one. Wow. And it's just a, it's a beautiful, compelling album. So cool, so cool. Tip your hand as to who the third one is. We'll talk more about them at the end because we're going to play a song by then. But let the audience know who the other artist is that's currently on Outer Marker Records. And then, as I said, is there anybody in the pipeline? And, and what could catch your eye as to an artist you might consider bringing on? Yep. The third album currently available um, in the vein of and now for something completely different is an album called Twin-Headed Dragon. And this is by a group called Disaster Artist. They are twin brothers. It's a two-piece art punk band. It is as angsty as it gets. And our feeling was that punk had never been seriously recorded. There are some great punk albums that came out, but they were usually recorded fast and loose by, you know, whatever studio. Mm. So the energy was there, but they never really sounded great. Mm. We thought, well, no, punk is a valid art form. Let's give people a beautiful sounding, high energy recording of these two guys wow. just going to town. And it is wow. a phenomenal album. And we'll talk more about them at the end. Is there anybody that you're able to reveal that might be in the pipeline and like i said who might catch your eye or is it a case of you know we're not really looking to have people catch our eye or we're going slow at this and slow but sure wins the race kind of thing well there's one album that's in the pipeline right now and this is an album of bird song that was recorded by doug fern at just outside his studio and this is something that will likely and hopefully never be able to happen again in our lifetime. At the height of the COVID surge, when the world first shut down, he was outside on his property and he realized he was not hearing airplanes. He was not hearing mm. trucks. He was not hearing planes and trains. And for the first time, he heard silence. So he set up some microphones 
and the birds came out. I mean, as you can imagine, they're finally like, okay, it's our turn again. <laughs> and he's recorded this phenomenal experience of birdsong. And um, to be honest, I'm looking very strongly at yoga studios, pet stores. I mean, there's there's a very interesting, I mean, meditation chambers. There, there's a, a lot of market for something like this. And as I mentioned, now that the world's opened up again, these kind of recordings could not be created. Beyond that, uh, you know, what we're really looking to do is always look for music that we find compelling, fascinating, and to be a little esoteric, we, we always kind of have a soft spot for the stuff that's not going to be picked up mainstream. Mm. So we may not be looking for the next fantastic pop artist or the mm-hmm. ne- next fantastic country artist. There are already places where those people can go and they can get involved with those machines that are supporting what they do. What we'd love to be able to do are find the people that are creating compelling art that may not necessarily be mainstream and then see if we can work together. So the Doug Fern bird song, is that going to be just Nat sound or is it, well, no, he went in and laid down some keys or is there something that's been done instrumentally to underneath that? Oh, it's birds, baby. And let me tell you, these guys have been singing a lot longer than most of the pop <laughs> artists out there. So they've, they've got their act together pretty well out there. <laughs> this is what they was they were rehearsing for their whole lives is for the world exactly. to have their big coming out party. Wow. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. I'm joined today on the Now Here This Entertainment guest line from Sacramento, California by Outer Marker Records CEO and guitar player Eric Larson. Coming up, I will be asking him about the Cracker Brothers, a duo act that he is a part of. Visit OuterMarkerRecords.com for more about the record label, including the artists that you've been hearing Eric talking about, as well as the ability to purchase music from those different artists including a direct link to native DSD for online purchasing. Do note when you're on OuterMarkerRecords.com the links to find the label on both Facebook and Instagram. Meanwhile, yes, this show is on Instagram too, but I personally am on the OWL app waiting to talk to you. That's OWL like the bird, but with two W's and two L's, and it's a great way to make connections for whatever you're doing career-wise, not just music. The founder of the app calls it LinkedIn on steroids. Although the huge difference and what makes it unique is that you're actually calling people through their app, meaning you don't have to give out your phone number, but these are still voice calls though. Experts from a wide variety of industries are on there connecting with one another every day. And as I always tell you, they are not a sponsor of this podcast. They're not paying me to talk about them. I have just found it to be really valuable in building connections. Try it out. Call me on there. Here's how to start. On my podcast website, nhte.net, tap or click anywhere it says home, and then read the article I have posted there under the headline, Help Now a Phone um, App Call Away to Learn More About OWL. I've also got links in there for you to download the app for free from either the App Store or Google Play. Plus, you will see my invitation code, which is a required field as you're setting up the app on your phone. Get on OWL and start on your way to making great new connections for your career. Eric, in the lead-up to today, you mentioned to me about Arter Marker Records' dedication to the audiophile community and how they are an integral part of your process. Share with us about that. Yeah, we've obviously been working with the audiophile community individually for quite some time, but these are people who are still actively listening to records. I mean, 
you know, I don't, I don't want to date us, Bruce, but when we grew up, you bought the LP, you took it home, you put it on the turntable, you sat there with the sleeve, you read the liner notes, and you would you decide what record to listen to, and it was an activity. As things have happened, and we've moved now to, you know, music being uh, just completely ubiquitous, and then it's on your phone, it's everywhere, it's become more wallpaper, mm. where people listen to music just because they can. And the audiophile community still sees music listening as the activity. And they're spending time and money to build these phenomenal systems. I mean, some of these can be shockingly expensive with all of this esoteric gear. And it's all designed to give them the absolute highest quality experience. And quite often what they're listening to is Pet Sounds remastered again. You know, Dark Side of the Moon again with a new master. And God knows, these are phenomenal records, but we just don't find that there are people out there who are specifically delivering extraordinarily high-quality, compelling, high-resolution albums to this community, and they're starved for it. So what we're doing is we're really wanting to make sure that we're giving them content that they can enjoy that really is new, and to be honest, is going to help them to finally hear what their systems can sound like. Because... Even though it's a great album, an album recorded in 1965 is not able to be recorded to the fidelity of an album that we can get today with today's technology. Mm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and I think that's just another vote of confidence for the belief that vinyl is back. Maybe not to the extent that it was, as you mentioned, many years ago when we all got used to it being a thing because there was nothing else at the time. But the more artists that I interview that say, yeah, I'm releasing on vinyl, I would remark a record saying, yeah, we believe in it enough that we're going to release our artist music on vinyl. I think, and Eric, you probably, in all the work that you've done, folks will hear that coming up about your background. I think you are in as good a position as any to really make an educated statement about vinyl. And I keep using the word resurgence, if that's the right word to use, but clearly you feel that there is enough of a demand, and you just mentioned it with the audiophile community. Absolutely. I mean, the fact, vinyl never went away. You know, so there's absolutely a resurgence because now you see it at Target and you see it at Barnes & Noble, mm. and it's it's back, you know, in, in front of the, the average consumer. But the record stores, there have always been used record stores, and they've always been full of people. There's always been the audiophile community. It's a, It's a format that's great. Um, it's not perfect. I mean, we all grew up with records, and when you got in the car to go to school, you couldn't bring your record with you and play it. So, all you know, cassette tapes and eight tracks solved a problem, and then you know, the iPod was a godsend because it solves certain problems. If I'm walking through an airport, I'm not going to strap a turntable on my back. So, there's, there's a time and a place, but the idea of being able to grab an album of something that you own to support that artist and be able to see the large artwork and put the album the album on. You really can get a fantastic emotional experience and vinyl cut by somebody who's really a pro, like let's, you know, Dave McNair, for example, is doing some fantastic vinyl mastering out there. The experience can be dynamic, it can be compelling, and it can be emotional. I mean, it can take you right back to where you were when you were a 15 year old kid, you know, spinning Who records. I want to go back to you saying that the fidelity that can be achieved today is far better than it was way back when. I mentioned earlier, audience, that we would get to this. So, Eric, tell us about DW Fern slash Hazelrig Brothers gear, both as it relates to the record label, but perhaps even more so might be of most interest to the indie artist out there who is or who wants to get 
serious about pro quality sound rather than just good enough, meaning whatever gear they're currently using that they think sounds good, but actually might be hurting them more than helping. Absolutely. Um, and again, this is this is not to be elitist. If you're a songwriter, I mean, Bruce, you know this better than anybody, songwriters write songs. So if what you have is your iPhone and a legal pad and a guitar, turn on the notes app, you know, turn on your memo, hit record and, and record your song. I mean, that's absolutely 100% valid and it's, it's necessary for today. But if you're looking to make a great sounding record, then you want to get a better microphone. You want to get a better preamp that takes that microphone signal and allows it to be converted to your recording system. You want to record at the highest resolution quality you can with your computer or whatever system you're using. And each component along the way, the better it is, the better audio you're going to get at the end. And quite simply, when D.W. Fern, Doug Fern, started building his preamps in 1993, he was absolutely paying homage to some of the circuits that he's heard way back in the day, and mm-hmm. he's still building to this day vacuum tube equipment. But our feeling is that the components in some of those industrial machines built in the 50s and 60s were built to a price and to a factory mentality as opposed to the handcrafted nature of what we're doing now. So uh. every component that we use is the highest quality it can possibly be. From every capacitor, every resistor, every switch, every VU meter, the metalwork, the paint we use on the front, the hand finishing. Mm. It's as good as it can possibly be. And that's why, not only for our records, Nearly every record on the radio right now at some point has probably touched a DW Fern or Hazelrig Industries piece of hardware because our customers are the top studios, the top engineers, the top mastering engineers and recording and mix engineers, and that's who's buying our gear. We also use it, of course, because why wouldn't we? You know, we know a guy, we get a good price on it. But, you know, it's really a matter of making sure that we make that available. And if somebody's at home with their microphone and they're recording in their computer with a decent interface, obviously purchasing something like a Hazelrig Industries VLC, it's a microphone preamp, it's an EQ, it's a DI box that you can plug your bass into or your keyboard. It really will take everything that you're doing and elevate it so that you're getting a much higher quality for your demos and the tracks that you're recording at home. Full disclosure, audience... I have no skin in the game. I'm not going to get anything by referring you over. I want to instead really encourage you, if you're an indie artist, to seriously, seriously, let me give one more, seriously consider the quality of the audio that you're putting out. If you read my blog every Monday on the website, there's a banner at the top for one submit. It's a service that you can submit your music for people to review it. And occasionally, occasionally, I will hear a song that's good enough that I believe in putting my name on it and writing a blog, writing a song review. That's not typically what the blog is every Monday. But I'm going a long way to say that when one submit sends me music that artists like you submit through their service, I start listening to it. And as soon as I hear that the production value is not good, it almost becomes kind of a case of, why does it even matter if it's a good enough written song or not? Or if it catches my ear, if it's something that's in a genre that a production means so much that people in the music industry are going to make a decision on your song that fast because they hear that the production value just isn't there. And then they're going to ask themselves questions like, does this person take their music career seriously? 
that they didn't believe in investing to have their music sound good when they submit it to record labels, to radio stations, to reviewers, to bloggers, to podcasters, the list goes on. So let me get off my soapbox, but believe me, that's how fast someone can hear it and someone can make a decision that you're not going to like. Eric, where would listeners go to buy Fern slash Hazel Rig gear? Uh, obviously, you can go to dwfern.com for our list of dealers. You can go to hazelrigindustries.com and see our list of dealers. Depending upon where you are in the world, we've got a long list of dealers out there. Obviously, we do a lot of work with our partners over at Sweetwater. Ah, we've okay. got a lot of dealers. Vintage King, we work with. I mean, there's there's a long list of people that we do work with, and I, I hate to play favorites. So I would say please just check out either our Instagram and ask us questions directly or pop over to the website and take a look at our dealers to find out who is in your area. Okay, okay. So everything that we've talked about to this point, let's push it all to the side because there's another hat that you wear, which is that of a musician. And as I mentioned, specifically being one half of the Cracker Brothers. And folks, I will put a link on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net, to crackerbrothers.com, where, wow, on the music page, there is a ton to consume, something like five different albums, I believe. Anyhow, Eric, tell the audience about the Cracker Brothers, the style of music, any current projects, all the things, as they say these uh, days. We've got the things. So <laughs> uh, years ago, I started working with a gentleman when I was working in Silicon Valley at Creative Labs, a gentleman named Scott Taylor. And um, we hit it off very quickly, and he began playing in a band I was playing with at the time for a bit. Then that band broke up, and we kind of went our way. We ended up working together at another company, Pinnacle Systems, down the road. And at that time... Pinnacle Systems had purchased a software company called Steinberg. And Steinberg makes Cubase, Nuendo. They make a number of the DAWs, the digital audio workstations that musicians and studios use to record their gear. As we were working with their marketing team, they said, oh, well, let me just get you a copy of the software. So Scott and I were out at lunch one day and we were talking about, you know, the fact that we're still songwriters. And, you know, he said, well, when was the last time you wrote a song? I'm like, I don't know, three years ago. And then we realized that, okay, but then we're not songwriters because songwriters write songs. Mm. So we started as small as you can possibly get. We got our little tiny you know, interfaces with our home computers and a very inexpensive mic. And we got our copy of the software and we started to write songs. I'd write songs with an acoustic guitar and a, and a vocal and I'd send that over to Scott where he was in San Jose and he would record the keyboards and the bass and then send it back and we'd go back and forth and collaborate. And as years went on, we were asked by a friend of ours, a gentleman named Joe McLeod. He was starting a website, of all things, called ILoveNachoCheese.com. <laughs> and we thought, well, obviously the world needs this. Um, we're completely behind it. He says, do you guys want to write the soundtrack? And we said, of course we do. So uh, we wrote a song called Nacho Love because that's what one does when one gets a request like that. And at that point, we needed a name. And we thought, well, what goes better with cheese than crackers? And, you know, being white and flaky, we thought, you know, this is a perfect match. So uh, at that point, almost as a joke, we named the band Cracker Brothers and we continued to write and record and produce. And we taught ourselves as we were going and we were learning as we went. And then we realized that we had... 10 or 12 songs. And we said, okay, well, let's make that a record and let's take a quick picture and let's move on to the next one. So it's been very much a labor of love. It's been a labor of frustration. There have been great times. There's a lot of arguments about exactly what the guitar part should sound like. And <laughs> now that Scott's living in Toronto, um, we're doing this across the country. But it really is a fascinating way for us to continue to work as artists, express ourselves, experiment with audio. 
And then quite simply, now that we're both working with Hazelrig Industries and DW Fern, we're able to obviously use some of this beautiful gear. And it's just an absolute pleasure now that the hobbies and the work, I mean, all the things that, you know, people use the passion word for, I mean, the stuff that we do anyway is now part of what we get to do for a living. And it's just, it's an absolute blast. And yes, if you go to crackerbrothers.com, you can just uh, listen to every album we have and uh, tell your friends. So because you mentioned all the different artists that are on Outer Marker Records, I don't want people to get confused. What, and I know you, you probably are someone that doesn't like this question, but if you had to put a label on it, the genre, the style of music that the Cracker Brothers does, and then, like I said, is there anything that you're currently working on? You know, I would say it's very much rock pop. I mean, you know, we all grew up with Beatles, Pink Floyd, and Who Records, and um, one of the beautiful things is I'm doing artist relations now for these companies and for the record label. I'm being exposed to a huge variety of music that I wouldn't normally have listened to. And I'm falling in love with some of the new pop stuff. I'm getting an affinity for hip hop that I never had before because it just, I was closed off to those things. And now that I'm working with these people, you know, they're like, Hey, check out this new album. You'll like this one. And it's, it's informing what we're doing as well. And then at some point we may actually make, see if it makes sense to release some of these albums on Outer Marker. At this point, we're recording things on our systems remotely, so we're not recording in the Outer Marker studios through that system, so it doesn't quite fit the throughput, so to say. Yeah. But at some point in the future, I mean, it, it could be there. Who knows? So what is your go-to guitar or guitars, plural, that either you're playing these days and or when you're recording Cracker Brothers music... And for that matter, a few weeks ago on episode 507, we heard Michael Rubin from the band King Falcon talk about his extensive guitar collection. And I know you've got quite the selection of guitars yourself. I'll let you answer the question first about, you know, go-to guitar, guitars, plural, that you're playing these days and or when you're recording Cracker Brothers music. But I also do wonder, from your collection, if there's any one or two in particular that might have a good story behind them. There definitely are, are some of those. Now, keep in mind, I was working at a, at a guitar store um, in my late teens and early 20s, and this was at the height of the hairband movement. So everybody was coming in and wanted to buy the Jacksons and the Charvels and the BC Riches that we were selling, and those were all phenomenal guitars. However, at the same time, falling out of favor were the Gibson Les Pauls, the Stratocasters, the, the Rickenbacker guitars. A lot of the guitars that my heroes were playing were not the flavor of the month. So I was able to purchase a lot of these just as used instruments. As they got older and I got older, used became vintage. So now I've got you know a number of Rickenbackers, you know, everything from a mid-70s 12-string to some mid-90s guitars. I've got a Les Paul Deluxe, just like the one that Pete Townsend used to play from 1971 hanging on the wall. Mm. But I would say of all of them, there is a specific ESP that holds a special place in my heart. Um, when I was at Tascam and doing artist relations, I started doing a lot of work with the band Death Angel. And I, I think some of those folks have been on your podcast yeah. in the past, yeah. if I recall correctly. Twice. Twice. And um, I kept in touch with those guys and I was working with them. And I got a call one day and they said, hey, we're going to self-produce our own music video. Would you like to help us direct it? And the answer, of course, is yes, because when somebody says, do you want to direct a metal video, you say yes. <laughs> so at the same time, uh, one of the guitarists, Ted Aguilar, who's just a beautiful man, 
he had released a new signature model on ESP, a beautiful guitar company. Kind of a, a white, single cutaway Telecaster shape, neck through, all white, white pickups. And I always thought it was fascinating that somebody in a metal band was playing a white guitar. And I asked him one time, and he goes, yeah, but when we get up there under the stage lights, he goes, my guitar looks fantastic. I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> so that's a guy who understands marketing. But the, the the last day, every day, they're bringing different guitars for the shoot. So different scenes, they're playing different guitars from their collections. The last day we were in my hometown recording at a little, or filming rather, a little bar there where we're recording a little bit of the um, the video. And he opened the case and this was his new signature series guitar was right there. I said, oh, you playing this one today? He goes, no, man, this is for you. This is a gift from the band Whoa. for helping us out. Whoa. So of all the guitars I've got, that one holds the most special place in my heart. Okay, but of all the guitars that you just talked about, are those all just quote unquote hanging on the wall or are you playing any of these? To be honest, they always hang on the wall and then every day I'll always pull down one guitar and that's the one that I play while I'm waiting for emails to come back or if I'm actually doing something. So kind of during the day as I'm doing my work, there's always a guitar next to me and I try and cycle through to make sure that nobody gets lonely. Ah, interesting, interesting. You mentioned in there about working at a store when you were 16. I should have done this at the start of the episode, but... Give us a look in the rearview mirror at your background, both as a musician and working in the music industry. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is one of those things that when I grew up, you know, listening to Monkeys records and then eventually Beatles and Who records, I just absolutely loved it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be in a band and I'm looking for access to guitars and I need strings and I need all these things... I should probably work in a guitar shop. I mean, mm -hmm. that's where the stuff is and that's where the people are. So I started working in a couple of local guitar shops. Um, I met some people who are friends of mine to this day. Um, in fact, to tell one story, uh, one gentleman I was working with years ago, and this is back in the 90s, who always loved BC Rich guitars. I spoke with him not long ago. He is now part owner of BC Rich. Wow. After wow. all these years. So, I mean, we're all kind of in it, but... Um, I started doing that for a while, and then through a friend of mine, I was able to find a job in Silicon Valley at the very beginning of the computer audio revolution because they needed somebody to talk to musicians about their computers. They said, look, we can teach you how computers work. You'll never teach us how musicians work. <laughs> so I started working on that, and then after a couple of years, I went to you know a different company and a different job. But... I always was gravitating towards jobs that had something to do with audio or music production or video production. There was always something about that. And, you know, the nice thing was I was able to do PR or marketing or product development or developer relations. There were all these different roles and all these different jobs where, you know, you would think, oh, I, my guidance counselor in high school never told me about that job. Mm. But I was always music adjacent. And it was just something which was always fun because I could always find something to love about whatever job I had. And then eventually, through a friend of mine who was one of my reps back in the music store days, now you know 25 years in the past, he calls and says, hey, I'm working at Tascam, which is, of course, a company I remembered from selling music gear. Mm -hmm. He says, we need to hire a marketing person. Are you interested? So that got me back into the music industry formally as now working for a manufacturer as opposed to working for a retailer. And that's continued to the year. So, you know, one of the things I've, I've found is through keeping my eyes open and meeting a lot of people, meeting people kind of with similar interests, but doing things a little bit different way, and occasionally just saying yes to things that I figured I could do, but didn't know how to do, I've kind of forged a career 
by accident that ended up being rewarding and fun. And I got to meet people like you. You know, I mean, we met at Tascam, what, coming up on seven, eight years now, ago yeah. now? Yeah, it'll be seven years in January. And, you know, you did say, as the interview has been going along, that, of course, you were playing in bands. And I think it's implied, even though you didn't state it, that clearly all these connections you were making, you were doing the equally important work, which was staying in touch with those folks, because somebody doesn't call you up after 25 years and say, hey, would you like to come and work at Tascam if you haven't heard from them in 25 years? So clearly, you were also doing the really important part, which is after you make those connections, staying in touch with those folks. I can't, yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I cannot stress that enough. One of the benefits of working with larger companies is you work with thousands of people. And with those thousands of people, you find that there are 100 or so people that you really enjoy working with. And then of those 100 or so people, there are 10 where you really absolutely make a, a connection, either emotionally or psychologically. You just find out, boy, I really work well with this person. We kind of get that. And in my opinion, you kind of build your train and you know of the 100 people you worked with, yeah, you'll occasionally send a note on Facebook or Instagram, but from every job I've had, there are probably five or six people that I call or, or text every couple of months to stay in touch because these people have become part of my life. That also is somebody who then, you know, they'll call and say, hey, I know somebody who's looking for a job here. What can you do? Or I know somebody who's looking to speak to somebody at this company because they're interested in a microphone. And you just kind of build that network of trusted people. So it's not a matter of just going out and schmoozing, glad-handing so that you can say, oh, I've got a huge Rolodex, but you build this network of people who trust each other and actually do good work for all the right reasons. And when you kind of become part of that tribe, it makes it much, much easier to try things, to step out, and just to kind of grease wheels and, and get things happening. I mean, you know, if we need to put on a show in the old barn... We're 10 phone calls away from, from getting the stage lights up and, you know, getting the band going. I would argue that you're probably maybe like five phone calls away, but I'm I'm biased because Eric and I, as he just mentioned, have known each other for what will be seven years in January. And it's also important, folks, to just be a nice person. And I think, Eric, that that list that you whittle down of a company that has a thousand people and you whittle it down to a hundred and there's really 10, there are 10 people who, yeah, they're really good at what they do and they can help you out professionally, but they're just good people. Just good people. Or, you know, I have some friends where, I mean, we're, we're all asses, but we're, we're similar <laughs> asses, you know. So, and, I mean, you know, always, I can't say we're always nice, but we're nasty in all the right ways, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, on that note, we're going to close today with a song called Twin-Headed Dragon, which is by another act that's on Outer Marker Records. Eric mentioned them briefly earlier called Disaster Artist. Eric, before I let you go and I play that track, share with the audience first more about these guys and their music. These guys are absolutely incredible. From the hand-painted t-shirts that they create during mm. their gigs to wow. their constant work on social media, their extremely prolific output as musicians, the high-energy gigs. I mean, I've seen videos where you know he's playing his bass with a broadsword, and then the, you know they immediately the mm. shirt comes off and they just launch into this high-powered act. I mean, it's it's amazing to see people who are this smart. Who are playing with this level of energy 
they are absolutely not phoning this in at all. And I am simply thrilled that we were able to capture it to the point where people can listen to this and really understand the energy that comes across when these two guys start going at it. They are phenomenal guys, great musicians, and just an absolute blast to listen to. So next time you're getting stuck in traffic, please put on this record, turn it up as loud as you can, roll down the windows, and just go for it. So they are based where? Because it sounds like you're saying that they are an artist that people can look to go out and see perform live. Yeah, they're in the Philadelphia area now, and they're playing quite a bit. And I mean, everything from block parties to clubs to basements, uh, supermarket openings, bar mitzvahs. I mean, these guys are out there. They are relentless, and it's just amazing to see the energy they throw at it. Outstanding, outstanding. Eric, this was long overdue. Thank you so much. It was great to finally have you on Now Hear This Entertainment. I'm so I'm so thrilled. I mean, I've been a listener for so long. I'm so thrilled to finally be a guest. Good stuff. Good stuff. And folks, with that, I will wrap up another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to guitar player, one half of the Cracker Brothers, and Outer Marker Records CEO Eric Larson. I mentioned this at the beginning, and I should have restated it when he was talking about their gear, but he is also head of marketing, artist relations, and sales for DW Fern slash Hazel Rig Industries. For Outer Marker Records, visit the label's official website at OuterMarkerRecords.com. I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, NHTE.net. You will see on their website that you can purchase music there or link over to the native DSD website to order. By the way, look too on OuterMarkerRecords.com for the logos to find the label on Facebook and Instagram. You also heard Eric talk about the Cracker Brothers. I'm going to also put a link on the show page for this episode to CrackerBrothers.com. As I mentioned earlier, tons to listen to on the music page of their website. Plus, you'll see links for the Cracker Brothers on YouTube and Facebook. I do truly hope that you like this show, that you're enjoying what I'm doing every week on the Now Hear This Entertainment podcast. If you've made it all the way to the end, thank you for having stuck with Eric and I And I'm going to assume that that means that you do like the podcast. You can take action to let me know that you appreciate the work that I do to keep making this show happen every week, every month, more than nine and a half years without missing once by going on my podcast website, nhte.net, and then using the yellow Buy Me a Coffee logo that you will see there. This is not a sponsor. It's not affiliated with any brand or chain. As much as I like to go to Starbucks for their hot tea, this is just a fun way for you to send your support, your thanks to me, including a note that I will see when you utilize that option. You can also just head directly to buymeacoffee.com slash Bruce W. That's going to do it for episode 511. Thanks ever so much for listening. I'll send you out today with a song from Disaster Artist who you just heard Eric talk about. This is called Twin-Headed Dragon. <laughs>